Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles. I'm going to give the guys a break today. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, a passage that perhaps is familiar to you with regard to the triumphal entry of Christ. And um, we're going to be spending some time this morning considering that. We're also going to be uh, partaking of the Lord's table uh, this morning. Um, if you're a guest here, you're certainly welcome to participate, um, provided that you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and are resting in his finished work. And parents, I would trust that you would use sound discretion with respect to your children's participation um, uh, with the elements uh, that will be handed out. This will certainly be a good teaching opportunity if your children do not know Christ to explain to them after church today what took place and why it took place and the reasons for uh, your participation and how, too, they might be able to do that uh, at some point in time. A great gospel moment for you as a parent. I trust that you will take advantage of that if presented. So Matthew chapter 21, um, we'll pray and then we'll get into this passage and, and unpackage some important words or phrases that we find here this morning uh, in, this, uh, in this segment of Matthew. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We praise you for all that you've done for us. We rejoice that you indeed have paid it all, um, that we rest in your finished work that we don't have to do anything, nor can we do anything. Help us to be mindful and always remember that. We tend to forget that piece of it. We always want to seemingly add things to it. We rejoice that we're able to be here today as the body of Christ called out, marked out, identified exclusively as belonging to you. And these things that we do here today at Community Bible Church, communion and baptism, remind us of who we belong to and why we rejoice that we're known by you. May these uh, ordinances that you have instituted for us uh, cause us to reflect upon all that you have done for us, what it is that you have accomplished in redeeming us and how we can rest in that and how we have been washed and cleansed and how we can adore you in a way that we never did before and live for you um, as we refused to do before you saved us. Um, may we marvel at the fact that we were once dead but have been made alive. We read a passage this morning where people marveled that Lazarus was alive and they wanted to see him because he was alive. But here this morning, we sit in a room of people who were formerly dead and have been made alive. May we likewise marvel at your wonderful grace and the miracle that you have performed. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word today. There is so much going on, so many things that distract us the endless news cycles, the bombardment of information, the things that cause our heart to ache, like what happened in Nashville this past week. We lift those people up to you, the pastor there who lost his daughter, who lost friends, the church, the congregation gathered there. May you comfort them in a way that only you can do. May you speak to their grief in a way that only they will understand and comprehend and only that you can do. We care for them as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're concerned about the state of our nation. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up leaders who are worthy of the obligation to perform the good that you have ordained for government. 
We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be attentive to the age in which we live. May we see the gospel opportunities and may we be bold in our witness for Christ. Help us this day, we pray. We are feeble, we are weak, but you are mighty and strong. Help us to remember that at all times, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this passage we have before us today is one of my favorites, and I'm excited to get into it with you today. You probably know by now, if you've been here for any time, that I like to focus on facts, discrete sections of Scripture that you often gloss and then find that they are rich with rubies of theology and encouragement, and such is the passage that we have before us today. Beginning in Matthew chapter 21, let's read um, through verse 11, beginning at verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going on ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, We understand then that uh, certain events are uh, unfolding and that there is indeed a picture of fulfillment here. I think this is what's important about this passage. What we also find is that identity is, is important to this passage for Matthew in terms of the information that is communicated to us. Um, there are certain things that happen to us that help identify us. When we're born, our footprint and our handprints are taken This is done to help our parents in the hospital properly identify us. And today, of course, we have a multitude of other types of technologies and high-tech things to help identify individuals. Eye scanners are used in some workplaces in order to access certain high-security areas. We have surveillance cameras apparently everywhere now. (laughs) Not that I'm engaging in any conspiracy theories. I'm I'm sure they're there for our safety. We have cameras at airports and government buildings. We even have those that have the capability of taking a picture of a person and then making an accurate identification by simply noting a few unique features of their face. Well, we find here today that there are certain things that we find out about Christ that help us identify him. Like these technologies, the scripture tells us that there are things that we can use to identify who Jesus is. And these facts are important for us. And so here in this story of the triumphal entry given to us by Matthew in his gospel, it's also recorded in the three other gospels, a little bit different. We read a portion of John today that communicates his perspective. 
Here, Matthew is going to be using certain identifying factors to help us to identify Jesus Christ, that he is indeed the Son of God. He is indeed the promised Messiah. He is indeed the one who will save his people from their sins. And so Matthew here in this particular passage in his gospel is going to help us recognize from afar some of the distinct features of Jesus. The purpose behind which is to help us to recognize and respond to him as the promised king, as the one who's come in the name of the Lord. And so we want to be attentive to this. Dear friends, information is given to us in the scripture adequate for us to draw conclusions about who Jesus is. That is the point behind the gospels. And in particular, the gospels are very fact-intensive about the events that lead up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. A lot of time is spent in all of the Gospels providing us with details about these particular events as it relates to Jesus as the Messiah, the one who is able then to save. He is the Savior. He is the promised one. Now, of course, the problem and what Matthew is ultimately addressing too in the Gospels is to make certain that people are understanding that he comes as the Savior, not as the conquering king as some had hoped for. Of course, his arrival on a donkey is certainly problematic for people who were thinking that's what he was going to do, thinking that he was going to arrive on a, on a, on a significant, brilliantly trained steed, a horse, as a king would have done. No, he comes riding on a donkey. But that's not necessarily the fact that I want to emphasize. So in this passage, I want to note the theme of fulfillment, In verses 1 through 7, we are introduced to the theme of fulfillment. The first feature we are to notice in this is regarding the events that led to the acquisition of the donkey and then what happened with the donkey. Now, I'm not going to be talking necessarily about donkeys today. I'm not necessarily fond of donkeys. My grandpa hated donkeys. Um, He was a Tennessee Walker guy, so uh, he wanted nothing to do with donkeys. He thought they were a waste of time. But nonetheless, this donkey is important, and these particular donkeys are important. There are two in play, and we'll notice that. And in this famous scene, we see two fulfillments, the fulfillment of a present command and the fulfillment of a past prophecy. So we have a present command and a past prophecy. First is the fulfillment of Christ's present command. We see in verses 1 through 3 this. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus describes what two of his disciples are to do and what they will encounter in doing it. These two are to go into the village. There they will immediately find a mother donkey and her foal or colt. Those animals will be tied up. These men are to untie them and bring them to Jesus. Jesus adds, if anyone says anything to you, like, hey, what are you doing? Or stop, thief. You shall, you, they, they were to say to them, what? The Lord has need of them, and he will send them at once. So what's going on here? What's happening? Why are these facts significant for us? What do you and I do with these facts in 2023 in Beloit, Ohio? Do they matter? Should we waste our time considering some event that unfolds over 2,000 years ago in some discreet suburb of Jerusalem? Does it bear any importance to us? I would submit to you it bears significant importance in these kinds of facts are critical. They are very, very critical. So what's going on here? Did Jesus prearrange this? 
Did he happen to know somebody in this village who had a donkey and a colt that had just had a foal? And had he talked to them beforehand and somehow prearranged this in some pattern of deception, perhaps, or trickery, not disclosing to his disciples what it is that he had been doing? Did the owner of these animals have an angelic revelation of the plan? Or was the man merely a follower of Jesus, and when these two said the code word Lord, he gladly gave them what they wanted? No. That is not what is going on here at all. And I think that's clear from the passage. The details of the story from all the gospel accounts show us that, this, that Jesus, who is God, was sovereignly in control of everything. Everything. Even donkeys in another town and their owners. The fact is important to the story. We are told in verses 6 and 7 of this passage is that what Jesus told the disciples to expect and do was precisely fulfilled. Precisely fulfilled. Now, the other accounts in the Gospels do indicate that at one point in time, someone did say, hey, what are you doing? And the information that the Lord gave to the disciples, that Christ gave to the disciples, they communicated to them, and immediately the man gave over and said, sure, go ahead, take them. And they did. Now, it's interesting in the passage that we see, if any, in verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, So he's given his disciples directions. And what he tells them to say is very important. He says this. You tell them the Lord has need of them. Now this phrase, the Lord has need of them, is significant. It indicates, of course, that the Lord wanted them. And it's interesting that Jesus instructed the disciples to use this word to identify himself. It is possible that the owner of the donkeys would have known that the Lord meant Jesus, but he also might have taken it to be a reference to God the Father. To God the Father. In that case, he would have understood the disciples to be saying, God has need of them. In truth, he would not have been wrong in interpreting their words that way. And I actually think that Jesus meant the owner to understand the Lord as the Father. Jesus understood that it was in the plan of God that he should make his interest into Jerusalem in this way. So it was by divine appointment that the disciples were fetching the donkeys. And I think that's significant. The idea that he is is communicating in this simple phrase to the owner of these donkeys that God has need of them because what is in process at that moment is the fulfillment of the promises connected to the hope and salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. This is important. So you and I need to be mindful of this. When we consider passages like this, what is it that we take away from them in terms of our confidence and our trust and our rest and our hope? We understand then that what was taking place here is the fulfillment of a prophecy related to the verification of the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. This is why God would have need of the donkeys. Apparently, God likes donkeys, and that's good. And he had need of them to fulfill that which had been promised some 500 years ago by the prophet Zechariah. And so these types of facts are incredibly important for us. These details, why why would you be given something like this? 
Why, why isn't Matthew 21 a list of things for you to do? Why isn't Matthew 21 a whole chapter just on how to be a Christian? Why isn't Matthew 21 just a whole list and litany of things about what you should do at 7 a.m. in the morning and 8 a.m. and at noon and at 6 and what you should cook for dinner and whether you should take the job in Dallas or not? Why, why, why isn't it that way? Because that's not what the Bible is about. That would lead to legalism because what you would be doing then is trusting, resting confidently in your performance of the listed items in Matthew chapter 21. That won't work. That never, ever works. What Matthew 21 gives me are facts that I then put into my mind. Faith consists of knowledge, assent, and trust. These facts give me knowledge about Jesus Christ. Now, what's important is that all of these facts are reported, recorded at least on four different occasions in the Gospels. The Gospels are amazing. The Gospels, from a legal context, provide us with what the law requires, a multitude of witnesses to confirm a truth. Okay? When you're in a courtroom and you're trying a case, you can try a case with one witness. <sighs> Maybe it will work. You can try a case with two witnesses. Ah, now you're cooking. You get three witnesses and you can almost take it to the bank in the context of whatever it is you're trying to prove. The more witnesses you have, the more verifiable it is, and the more likely it is that people are going to believe it to be true. The Gospels give us that. You have all these different perspectives, different details. Mark tells us a little bit differently. John says it one way. Luke says it this way. Matthew says it this way. The reason for the variance isn't because they couldn't get their story straight. It's to give you additional details and factors upon which then you can ponder and consider the facts. The same is true of the whole issue related to the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's like you're watching the whole event unfold from four different news outlets. What do you got over there, Mark? Well, I've got uh, this guy sitting over here, and he's talking to John. And what, what, about, what about you, Luke? Well, they're over here doing this. What about you, Matthew? Well, they've got this angle going on, and this thing's things happen, and you know, all this is going on. These guys are over here in the corner, and they're conspiring. They're, they're trying to give Judas money and blah, blah, you know, all this stuff. So you have all these details. And we are people who like details. We like information. We want the facts, but we oftentimes gloss these facts, so that's important for us to be mindful of. The fact of the matter is that God, in this moment, is setting in motion the confirmation of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one who Matthew identifies in 121 who will save his people from their sins. Okay? So this is important for us. And such a fulfillment is very important. But ultimately, amazingly, it's really not even the main point of verses 1 through 7. There is another point, another second fulfillment that demands our fuller attention. In verse 3, we have read that the Lord has need of them, these particular animals. It's a paradoxical statement. Does the Lord need anything? No, of course not. Does Jesus, who thus far has walked everywhere, long miles up, up north and down south, Need these beasts of burden for his overburdened legs? No, that is not the reason he needs them. 
The reason he needs these animals, and specifically the colt, is to reveal who he is and what his mission is all about. He needs them to fulfill a past prophecy. A past prophecy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, we read this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. We are told that Jesus died in accordance with the Scriptures and that he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. Here in Matthew's Gospel, we should notice that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey, of all animals, in, order, in other words, to fulfill a specific Old Testament prophecy that we find in Zechariah 9.9, which Matthew alone records of the four Gospel writers. We note in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 through 5, that Matthew says this, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah is often labeled a minor prophet, but his prophecies are of major importance, for he is alluded to or quoted over 80 times in the New Testament. 80 times. And in his most famous prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, he exhorts God's people, whom he calls the daughter of Zion, to celebrate their future, to rejoice in the promise of the coming king and in the establishment of his kingdom. Zechariah 9.9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed or having the Uh, endowed with salvation or having the ability to save, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So 500 years before, you've got Zechariah making this prophecy related to this particular event. That's significant. What we have then is the fulfillment of it. We notice that God needs the donkey. He wants the donkey to fulfill the prophecy, to begin to establish the facts that relate to the fulfillment of the prophecy. People see things, understand things, comprehend things. They remember the prophecy. The purpose of it all is to bring together the idea and the truth of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That's relevant for people who live in Beloit, Ohio today, as it was for the people who lived here at that time. It's just as relevant, it's significant. And as we examine the first part of the verse, we might think that it's not so extraordinary to think that if God were to raise up an earthly king to bring divine victory and to inaugurate his peaceful kingdom, which verse 10 of Zechariah 9 indicates, such a ruler would be a righteous deliverer. And this makes sense. In contrast to the many wicked kings who have preceded him, we would only expect that God's divinely appointed king would conform to the morality of God's law and bring with him redemption for God's people. So when Zechariah speaks of this king as being righteous and having salvation, we find nothing in such a description to be out of the ordinary. And we should take great confidence and comfort in it as well. He speaks of this particular great king as being humble and mounted on a donkey. We are perhaps tempted to think that something is wrong. Humble? Donkeys? Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to talk to people about this? Is this a mistake? 
Lord, am I supposed to preach this passage? Yeah, I am. Is this a misprint? It should be glorious. It should be a war horse. If you and I rode it, he'd be coming in on a Clydesdale. We'd have the Budweiser wagon hauling him into town with a band, the West Branch marching band in front of him. Hooray! No, this is no mistake. There is no misprint. The prophet intentionally wrote of this king being humble to make him stand in stark contrast to the arrogance of the kings of the modern age. So we have these important facts, and we have another important fact as it relates to uh, the issue of, um, of, of the facts that are provided. Now let's look at this. So in verse 6, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Now, what that means is that he sat on the donkey. So they made a saddle, basically, out of the coats that they had. Now, there's a whole lot that can be said about what's going on here in terms of the donkey being an unbroken colt, male, baby, donkey, and the mom being there. Moms don't like their babies being played with, especially horses in their and their foals. They get pretty antsy about things, and they'll charge you, and they'll come after you, and they'll kick you, and you don't want to be in the way of a, of a mom, horse, or donkey, and their foal. People have been severely hurt and killed by them. So that's significant. Not only that, you've got a donkey that's never been ridden before. This is what this means. Pat Pirelli didn't spend any time with this donkey. If you don't know who Pat Pirelli is, he's a horse whisperer. He's a guy who can do amazing things with horses. No, this, this horse, this, this little fool hadn't had anything happen to him yet. He was unbroke. Yet what happens? The disciples, you've ever tried to lead a donkey? You ever tried to lead a donkey and its mom? Do you think the donkey and the, the baby donkey wanted to leave the comforts of their home? No, absolutely not. But the Lord had need of them showing the sovereign control over that event. And so they were able to... I, I doubt that the, the two disciples had any experience with these types of animals in the terms of that type of an event. It's not likely in the context of having to lead these bucking donkeys down the road. But they weren't. They gently went, knowing that they were being controlled by their sovereign creator. Isn't that amazing? God had created them for a purpose, and they were fulfilling their purpose perfectly. They went down the road gently, quietly, they put coats on them. You ever try to put a saddle blanket on a horse that's never been broke? That's a rodeo. <laughs> you ever try to put a person then on that, on that animal? They've never seen before, never smelt before, ever seen, not, they not, knows nothing about them. Jesus wasn't feeding them every day. He wasn't taking them their oats and giving them their water, cleaning their stalls. They had no clue who this guy was. Yet here he goes, jumps on their back, on its back rather. And this is what's so important. John tells me this, and where we read this morning, John 12, look at this. John gives us a very succinct summary of what happened, but it's incredibly important, as do the other gospels. Look at verse 14 of John 12. John 12, 14, 
Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. Sat on it. That is an incredibly important biblical fact. In fact, I would submit to you, it's right up there with, it is finished. He sat on it. If he doesn't sit on it, he's not the Messiah. He's not Jesus Christ. And you can't have any confidence in him at all. He cannot be the object of your faith unless he sits on it. That's amazing. The gospel has to tell us these facts. Why? Because Zechariah said he would sit on it. This is Jesus Christ. He's the redeemer of the elect. He's the savior. He is the promised one. He is the one who Matthew identifies in Matthew one twenty one that he will save his people from their sins. Why? Because he is the one who would be able to sit on the donkey. You never imagined there was so much theology in donkeys, did you? Well, there is. And it's wonderful theology. It's beautiful theology. It's theology that causes us to ponder and to marvel and to wonder at all that Jesus Christ has done for us. 500 years had passed from the time that Zechariah wrote those words. 500 years passed from his pinning that peculiar promise. 500 years passed until, as all four gospels tell us, Jesus asked for the colt. He was brought a colt, and he sat on it. We then are comforted by the fact that he sat on the donkey. The Prince of Peace who comes in peace, who will one day bring priests of the consummated kingdom, sat on the donkey as the initiating process of accomplishing that very thing. He ultimately would bring peace, but not peace in the sense of which many think of it. He brings peace in the sense of he reconciles vile, wicked sinners with a thrice holy God. And Zechariah would exclaim in his promise the fact that he was the one who was able, he was endowed, he had the ability, only he has the ability to save. And the fact that he sat on the donkey establishes the fact that he is the one who will save and can save and is mighty to save and will always save. Take great comfort in the fact that he sat on the donkey. So next time you see a donkey, you may be inclined to think about the fact that one time Jesus sat on a donkey. And that because he sat on that donkey, you, in turn, can be confident that he is indeed the promised one from Zechariah 9.9. And that he brings peace and that he brings restoration and that he is the one who is able to save mightily. So the facts, see, friends, the facts are important. But the application of the facts are important. The applications of the facts to the truth of the Scripture about who Jesus Christ is. The angels would proclaim at his birth that 
He comes to bring peace, that he is indeed the Savior, that he is going to extend salvation. And all of these events unfold to fulfill those promises, those proclamations. And this particular fact, that he sat on the donkey, is incredibly important to you and me. If he doesn't sit on the donkey, he can never say, it is finished. He can never say it. He has to sit on the donkey. Now, it's interesting to me that of all the things that are unfolding at that point in time in the life of Christ, he's thinking about donkeys. That's amazing. You would, now, if it's you and me writing the story, we, we don't tell this. We don't talk about it. We, we do like the rest of them did. We get ready for the big parade. Sadly, too, what happens is that the people who saw him sit on the donkey a few days later crucify him. And rather than crying out Hosanna, they say what? Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Crucify him. Even though they saw him sit on the donkey. These people knew their books. They knew Zechariah 9.9. Indeed, look at the language it follows in the story. Hosanna, blessed, high, all the words. But they did not believe ultimately the truth of what they were seeing. It's sad in that way. So this morning, what I want you to do as we partake of the elements is to think about the fact that you are here today as the redeemed of Christ because he sat on the donkey. That Zechariah 9.9 has been fulfilled for you. You know, there's a phrase that says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. When he was on the donkey, I was on his mind. He sat on that donkey for me. He sat on that donkey for you. And if he doesn't sit on the donkey, you've got nothing. You're lost. You're in a state of complete desperation. The only confidence you'll have is in what you're doing, and that's never enough, ever enough. My faith is in Christ alone. And every morning I get up, I can be reminded of the fact that he sat on the donkey for me. And that donkey would ultimately take him into a town and to a people that would crucify him. Some pretty important facts. So this morning, as we partake of the elements, let's remember the verification that we have from Scripture that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. He is the one that Zechariah promised. He is the one who has been enabled to save us. We see God's hand in it too. The Lord God the Father has need of this donkey for his son, who he will then lead into that town to be slaughtered. I remember Abraham had a donkey. Abraham took his son Isaac and they went to a mountain for a sacrifice ultimately. There was a donkey in that story too. It's amazing what God does with donkeys. And we are the chief of donkeys sometimes. May God be merciful to us. May we rejoice in the fact that he sat on the donkey. So let's think about that this morning as we begin to prepare for the elements. We'll take a few moments to uh, just, uh, and again, so here, if you're new here to Community Bible Church, we do communion a little bit differently. 
it is not a somber kind of solemn event. I'm not going to. Uh, it, it's a it's a time for us to reflect on the fact that we are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and so it's a time of 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 joyful reflection. Now, you may have sin in your life, and I know that you do, I do. We need to get right with God. We don't come to the table in a light way in the context of ignoring the sin in our life. This is an opportunity to kind of perhaps say to the Lord, I forgive me for my sins, forgive me for the things I've done or I should have done or things I've said or shouldn't have said. That's fine, but at the same time, I don't want that to become the overarching theme of this because sometimes it does. I want this to be a joyful occasion. It's fun to be invited over to someone's house for dinner, isn't it? It's fun, and it's something that's joyful, and it's something that causes your heart to be glad, to be invited, and to be served. You're being served this morning by the Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who sat on the donkey. And as you partake of the elements, I want you to remember that he is joyfully giving you these elements to remind you of the fact that he sat on the donkey for you and that he cares for you and that he loves you and he's making intercession for you right this very moment as your advocate, as your high priest, as the one who loves your soul. That's what this is about. This is not some, some blithe ritual that we do that's just a Christian thing. No, as the redeemed of Christ, we partake in this because it reminds us of the wonder of our salvation. In the account that we read from John this morning, we're reminded of the fact that people wanted to see Lazarus because he had been raised from the dead. You've been raised from the dead. Look down the aisle. Look across the aisle. Turn around and look behind you. You're looking at people who were once dead. And now you're alive. That is a miracle. People say, well, why does anything happen anymore? We're baptizing 10 people tonight. People that God took their dead hearts and made them alive. He took a heart of stone and he made it a heart of flesh. And in so doing, he saved them. Imagine that. He saved them from what? The eternal wrath of God. An eternity without him in the context of his love and grace. Oh, they would know him in the context of his wrath and his justice. But now you sit here today and tonight we celebrate the salvation of 10 people who forever, for all of eternity, will always only know the love of God. Oh, John, Pastor John, why don't we see any miracles today? You've got 10 to look at tonight. You've got a whole room full of miracles. What do you want? My hope is that in hearing this, those of you who are here today who do not know Jesus Christ, that you will think and ponder the facts that have been presented about the one who sat on the donkey. What's your faith in? The things that you do or the things that he did? My faith is in the fact that he sat on the donkey. I, I accept that as true. I accept that as true. And so must you. You must be born again. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. You've heard the word today. Simple words. The Lord has need of a donkey. And he sat on it. What are you going to do with that? 
You can't stand before the Lord one day and say, I didn't know anything about it. Well, didn't Pastor John tell you one day in Beloit, Ohio, back in 2023, that Christ sat on the donkey? Now what? Oh, I was asleep. Well, that's too bad for you. You heard it. You heard it. So, think about it for a moment. We'll take a minute. We'll reflect on the truths that we've listened to today. We'll ponder the wonder of what we're doing. And then we'll partake of the elements. And while we're partaking of the elements, um, the Wallachs and the Blanchards are going to be singing a beautiful song. And then we'll go from there. So, let's, let's begin that process.